Hello and welcome to Back of the Grid. We are the Minardi of Formula One podcasting, but we do hope to perform at least a little better than poor Daniel Ricciardo's RB13 has done this weekend. Hopefully. Hopefully <laughs> so. Thing. Uh, I am your usual host, Tom King, and unfortunately, Chris and Stu, who do usually uh, appear on the show with me, have decided to go climb a mountain and basically avoid the first race of the season and then continue to call themselves F1 fans. Part-time. Disgraceful, guys. Disgraceful. But as you may have already heard, I am joined by someone who could potentially outperform them in any respect and be our Mark Webber. We are the Minardi. This could be our Mark Webber, who will go on to much greater things above us. Already does much greater things above us, to be fair. But we are joined by James Hargreaves. Hello, hello. Yes. I, I'm not so sure about <laughs> doing greater things than you anyway, but... Uh, uh, I don't know if that's a compliment on us or not. <laughs> no, of course it is. I, I, I like this whole Back of the Grid podcast. I listened to the last couple, really enjoyed it. Um, really love the Good. theme tune. I'm, I'm actually stood up, my microphone's on a microphone stand, I'm stood up and just doing a little dance to that theme tune. I dance to it every week too. <laughs> we, we, should, we should start an official Back of the Grid dance. Yeah, there's like little clicks in mine. I click a little to the music. <laughs> so you are obviously an F1 fan as well as all these other things, aren't you, James? Indeed. I'd, it's one of my favourite memories of growing up was getting up on a Sunday, having a bacon sandwich and sitting with my stepdad watching uh, the Grand Prix every weekend. Yep. And uh, I, I still do that kind of now, even with uh, my missus now, we sit and watch the, the F1 together and really enjoy it. So she's a fan as well? Or? Yeah, I think she had a similar thing. She grew up watching it with her dad as well, so it's just kind yeah. of fortunately become a pastime for us to do. So, well, right, let's let's cover the, the weekend. Let's let's do the weekend. So we'll, I'm going to skim practice because that, that is not what anyone wants to talk about. We know where we're going to end up with this. Mm-hmm. So we'll get the, the important stuff we need to get out of the way, out of the way. So FP1 and FP2 saw Hamilton topping both timesheets. Um, FP1 was everyone was a little tentative obviously new cars um, first time in Melbourne with the cars very different track in a lot of respects to Catalonia mainly it's a street circuit the bumps change every year as it is so everyone has, obviously has to find their feet uh, FP2 Palmer found himself in a wall Verstappen I don't know what he was doing but he it, it, it was going very very fast and it wasn't on tarmac. <laughs> I was I was worried for a moment watching Verstappen fly through um, the grass, thinking this can only end in tears. But luckily, he managed to keep it in control. Uh, and Sal, uh, sorry, Ericsson managed to beach a Sauber in a gravel trap. Yeah. Um, and then we had another crash in FP3 Saturday morning from Stroll. Uh, went into the wall coming out of I want to say it's turn eight, but that's just off the top of my head from memory. Um, and Vettel actually managed to top the sheets, which that the Ferraris looked fast. Yeah, even Mo- even in practice and stuff. Despite what we'll come to momentarily, but yeah, I, th- I think with practice and it's much like it was with testing. Is it was a masterclass in how to hold back the cars, so you you yeah. never knew just who had the pace and who didn't. So, And everybody was talking each other up as well. So Hamilton's saying Vettel was going to be the fastest. Vettel's saying Hamilton's always going to be the fastest. And 
You know, they just switch it's, it up every, every little little uh, run they have out. They turn it up a little bit. The thing that I found almost comical about the Hamilton thing was obviously Hamilton has talked down the Ferraris leading up to this weekend and even during practice, as you say. Uh, but in fact, even the post quali interviews, he was saying, you know, I, I still think that they're as fast as us, if not faster. Mm-hmm. And then he was interviewed after the race saying, Wow, Lewis, you, you said what you said and nobody believed you. He's like, well, I'm not a very good bluffer and I don't lie. So there you go. Like that, that, I just say it as I see it. And I, I think he, he, obviously he's a professional. He he can see that and he probably knew where they were at from what he's seen of them. Because him and Vettel are very astute at being able to work out what's going on in somebody else's car without being there and they're both very astute in the way that they look at the details like you always catch lewis and you always catch sebastian two of the first people you will see kind of having a little bit of a nosy on another car in park fermi to see what a wing's doing and what are the little bits and pieces they have on there and those those two and probably fernando as well like some of the first people you see doing that so i i, I do think that he genuinely feared the ferraris going into this weekend you know I think so, and the crazy thing is, I think there's even more pace in both of those cars. That they mm-hmm. that they're just gonna throughout the season, they're gonna eke out and turn up, and it, it's gonna be a good battle between those. I think this year for once, I, I'm hoping so. And I'm the the next couple of races will obviously start to show us that uh, in the sense that you're gonna get a a nice little variety of track now away from what Melbourne is. You can be good at Melbourne, but you're not necessarily going to be good elsewhere just because of the nature of the tracks. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how the Ferrari performs against the Mercedes in China and then similarly in Bahrain the week after. Indeed. And and whether the Red Bull can turn it on as well. Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, Verstappen was, was saying he was quite pleased with the general pace of the car. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, you know, they're not... It, it's a top three... It's a top three battle now, I think, already. it's There's very clearly three cars there that will challenge for podiums this season and the others are going to, I think, struggle to get a sniff. I know it's early days to be saying things like that, but I'm just, I don't know, everyone else does seem a long way behind the Red Bull and then obviously Ferrari and McLaren. Uh, McLaren, I wish it was McLaren. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ferrari and Mercedes are... Um, are probably the two leaders at the minute with Red Bull just kind of on their coattails. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, what I've seen that interesting as well, the shark fins, obviously, have been controversial. Some people like the aesthetic of them, some people don't. People like Adrian Newey kind of not too keen on them, but you can see what the aero benefit it provides. What's your standpoint, James? Anything? I, I don't mind. It's one of those where everybody wants better cars and better racing. And, you know, there's regulations to, you know, keep, keep it disciplined as such. But part of me also thinks, you know, if they think that they can eke out some better performance, then let them do it. And yeah. let, let's see see it on track and see whether it benefits the race itself. Definitely. And uh, Aesthetically, they're not the greatest thing to look at, especially, you know, like the... Um, Mercedes coat hanger on the back at the minute, uh, but you know if if they think that that helps them get better speed, then leave them to it. For me, everybody's well, got the same opportunity to do that. 
the interesting thing is, from a technical point of view, quite a number of the spins over this weekend have not been directly blamed on the shark fins, but it, there is a logical possibility that they are behind them to a certain extent. Um, there's Ricardo's, um, which is what occurred during Q3 of qualifying, which caused him or at least the start of the issues he's had all weekend. Um, but Palmer's could possibly be contributed to it. Um, and the interesting thing is, when you sort of start taking this thing into consideration, there's a couple of moments that you'll see if you watch highlights from the weekend that almost back it up. And essentially, it's the fact that the shark fin itself is, because of the way it works, obviously, while the car's stray or even turning it almost directs the air to where it needs to be in the rear wing to enhance the performance of the rear wing. But there is a point where if you are just a little too sideways, you're pushing that car a little too hard, it becomes a detriment to the airflow. You lose virtually all airflow to the rear wing because of the way that the shark fin's positioned and worked, and the back end is gone. And that's where you see in these literal 180 snaps that Ricardo, Palmer... Uh, Marcus Ericsson had one similar to that. There was quite a few over the over the weekend that would potentially be contributed to that. But then, if you look at in contrast, um, a slide Bottas had and a slide Massa had, those guys are both running slightly smaller shark fins and also have the additional T bars, which are compensating for any offset that the shark fin might cause anyway. And enhancing rear downforce. So hmm. there you go. <laughs> that's, that's my attempt at being Ted Kravitz and explaining why the shark <laughs> fins might cause spins. But but look in engineering, look at any kind of dynamo structure, and it it's a similar shape to any kind of dynamo that you'd see, mm-hmm. which is which is essentially made to spin. So obviously there's going to be some element of that. I think the interesting thing I think it was with Ericsson was he, he corrected himself. And then it seemed fine for kind of half a second and then started to spin him out again and it just didn't correct himself a second time and spun. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. I'd like to keep... I'm going to keep an eye on it, effectively. Mm. Uh, I will be the shark fin monitor and I will try and see... I, I just find it interesting, for example, like the Bottas slide was no no more aggressive a slide than the one that spun Ricciardo around and threw him in the trap and into the wall. So I think the Ricciardo one, to see. The Ricciardo one stood out because it was in a really strange place. Nobody ever kind yeah. of spins in that place. So yeah. so that's got people asking the question of did the shark thing contribute to that? There was there was a little bit of a similar incident that we did talk about a couple of weeks ago, which was it was Palmer. Um but it was he was coming out of turn two at Spain at Catalonia and the the shark fin was flapping around all over the place, and then it just seemed to boom back end when as though, as though some a crosswind had almost caught him in that scenario, and kind of just knocked knocked it off balance and and thrown it. Whether that's what actually happened or not is a different matter. Um, judging by some of what I've seen of Palmer this weekend, I'm disappointed in him. To, to be oh. honest, I think Palmer would take any kind of blame. He, he, would, <laughs> he would put the blame anywhere because he's already blamed absolutely everything so far. Yeah. So why, why not the Sharpfin as well? Exactly, exactly. Um, 
So yeah, Ricardo's weekend started out okay. He was doing okay in free practice, but then this qualifying incident we've been talking about, the crash, basically caused him to be unable to set a lap time in Q1. Sorry, in Q3. And ultimately he was 10th, but then the damage caused a gearbox change to be required, which then dropped him five places to 15th. Uh, and then, as anyone who's seen the race will know, he then didn't even manage to make it round to the grid due to what was ultimately just a small electrical sensor on the new gearbox, causing it to jam up in sixth. Uh, and he had to return to the pits, have that sorted, and join the race a couple of laps down. You, you've got a feel for the guy, haven't you? His, his home race as well. Yeah. Where he's, he's done pretty well. He's got podiums there before. Um, a lot of that crowd were there for him. and Definitely. I, I think that kind of contributed to them working on it uh, and actually bringing it out from the pits in the end because they, they wanted to give the, the fans something. And, you know, that was as much as they could give them. Well, to be, to be honest, uh, I can't remember where it is statistically, but... Something like the last 12 Australian Grand Prix have seen at least one safety car. Yeah. And and obviously you've got the unlapping rule uh, for the last couple of years. So, you know, that, that car's fast enough to unlap itself from the back markers. Um, and then, you know, a, pit, a round of pit stops gets him in front of the, the top enders. He'll easily unlap himself again from the back markers. So, you know, there was potential there for... We saw Mark Webber do something similar, and I know it's a number of years ago in a, what is now a, a totally different formula, mm. but we saw Mark Webber do similar things, and Jensen's 2011 win, you know, it's not it's not impossible. Yeah, it's not impossible. I think, <laughs> I, I, I think you know, in this day and age where you only get so many power units, and you kind of want to save the engine that little bit, and I, I think they probably would have erred on saving the engine if it wasn't for... Ricciardo, it being Ricciardo, it being that race, and, yeah, and them also needing to get they've they've done the testing, but with that settled, they needed to get the data for a few laps anyway. Precisely, and the the interesting comment that came out of all of that, where people were sort of questioning, would you send him out when you've only got four engines a season? Christian Horner's direct words were, "I think we we'll use five engines this season anyway, and I think most people will." Absolutely. It's interesting, and it comes back to the uh, the Hamilton scenario last season, where they basically cracked open two or three new engines that they shouldn't have had, took a huge number of penalties, but then he was fine for the rest of the season from an engine point of view, or logically he should have been fine. Um, but I, I understand that the goal of Formula One now is to sort of look at the efficiency, and that that is a as well as being an entertainment and a pinnacle of sport, part of being the pinnacle of that motorsport is to be efficient with the vehicles that they have and the equipment that they have. So I just think four engines could be a little harsh on a 20-race season. You know, that's a that's an engine that's got to do 60 laps of five tracks, effectively. Yeah, indeed. And, you know... All of these teams have to work within those rules, so it's an equal thing across the board. Everybody has to, has to work with it, so it should potentially affect everybody the same. Where you worry about it is the smaller teams that don't have as much budget for those extra engines and units. Yeah. Are they going to feel that they need to run the the lesser powered engines at some point? 
Well, there's, there was a nice uh, idea being floated around by Ross Braun, I think it originally came from, which was similar to when we were joking last week about having um, like a house team that the GP2 champions automatically come up to and, and something like that to, to try and bring new talent through and give give some guaranteed seats to people somehow uh, that, that in theory are deserving of it. But uh, Ross Braun was floating the idea around of a sort of a, a, a set engine gearbox and so on that is a standard, un, unbranded, it's not a, a key manufacturer or anything, it's like a, it is an FIA F1 setup to try and encourage some new teams to come in and, and potentially start on that and hopefully have a better time than uh, the Cosworth generation did that are now all gone, the, the three Cos- Cosworth teams that struck their own deals but have since you know succumbed to the cost of F1 and hopefully it will give a more affordable version of what Haas have done via Ferrari because they're, they're effectively a customer team. They're just buying a Ferrari. <laughs> Yeah, in, indeed. It's, the interesting thing with us is that they're, they're based out of the old Marussia plant, aren't they? Uh, is it Milton Keynes? But most of their technical stuff is in the US, and then yeah. they're, they're uh, a customer of an engine company based in Italy. Yep. How how they logistically manage all that is a, is a miracle to me. This, this is part of the reason, I think, that McLaren are having issues, uh, because... You've got a Japanese manufacturer of an engine working out of Japan and a working-based F1 team working out of working. Mm. Let's try and say that after a few beers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I think that is part of their issues, especially in previous years where, you know, the engine barely fit in the car, for example. You can't have, you know, half a car being built here, half a car being built there, and then try and glue them together somehow with without talking to each other properly and and I think that's where the whole McLaren Honda relationship began to break down in the first place. Yeah, indeed. And you know, Honda have apparently this weekend said that they they're talking to other teams now as well. It's like poor teams. As we've said before, um uh, they, they need more than two cars running that engine. People that can provide them reliable feedback as to what's going on with it. Uh, and, and it gets more miles under the engine's belt to to get the development done. Because, you know, as soon as you've got another team running it, that's half your development running, effectively. Yeah. <laughs> and then another team, it's a you know, it's third of it. So I hope they do sort the things out, because I feel sorry for both Fandorn and Alonso at the minute. But... We, we, we need to have a chat about McLaren, by the way, because... You know, I, where 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 did you rate the McLaren when you did your ratings uh, with the new livery? Visually, yeah, we initially put it about third. Do you know? I I was the same when I first saw it. I'm like, oh, that's that's great. The more I've yeah. watched it, and especially over this weekend, it looks awful. Yeah, we've we've definitely downrated it since the original. <laughs> yeah. The original. The it was. To be fair, I we had the Mercedes at number one and the Toro Rosso at number two. Mm-hmm. I I now move the Toro Rosso to number one in terms of visual, um, 
and yeah the mclaren had definitely slide down the more i see that ferrari the more i like it but i i initially rated the ferrari quite highly anyway when when we were doing our individual lists um, I, think, I think the ferrari and the mercedes are both classically very nice looking cars they're quite simple the yeah right nice color schemes quite simple um the toro rosso does win over for me this season i i do love how that stands out. The, the Toro Rosso seems to have just a bit of everything. It's a nice livery, it's nice colours, it, it looks sort of aerodynamically a nice car as well, and it just kind of generally wins over. And as you say, the thing about the Mercedes and the Ferrari, the reason that even though they're just very basic manufacturer colours of, we are Ferrari, we are red, we are Mercedes, we are silver, with a dash of sponsor colour with a bit of white for Santander on the Ferrari and a little bit of mint green for Petronas on the Mercedes, regardless of the simplicity there, the thing that you appreciate is if you look at that Ferrari head-on when it's coming at you on the track, it's it looks just an absolute beast of a machine. <laughs> it does. To it see does. it coming down a straight and fizz off into a corner, just... oh. Especially with this machine. wider profile, it's yeah, looking nice. But then there was a shot uh, during qualifying, I think, where there was a McLaren and uh, a Ferrari following it, and for for a, half a second, I thought they were both Ferraris because the McLaren <laughs> is so such a similar color and the the shading yeah. of the light and everything. And then the McLaren got closer to the camera, and I was like, oh, that's horrible. And then the Ferrari came past, I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> it's really strange. Yeah, the, the McLaren's definitely gone down in my initial estimations. I got caught up in the "there's orange on it" hype. <laughs> I'm afraid. Indeed, that's that's what caught me. But it's the wrong kind of orange. Is it? It's the wrong kind. Yeah, it's not. It's not light enough. It's if you look at a very old McLaren. So mm-hmm. you're talking, oh, 60s, 70s. It's quite a. Oh, I'm trying to I'm trying to think how you would describe it. It's a it's a much lighter orange anyway, regardless. Right. Like it, more of a yellowy side of orange than a red side of orange. I think that's part of the problem because it looks red in certain yeah, yeah. certain light. As I say, I mistook it for a Ferrari at first, and and from the front, it, it is just like a solid block of orange. Yeah. Whereas it looks nice from the side with the black and you know the design elements, but you know who am I to to judge? Oh, and just to quickly point out, painting the forehead india pink has not improved it that much <laughs> that, i'm just saying that we've 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 had this debate on twitter with a couple of fans but in fact yourself included you you mentioned indeed, it to yeah. us i think but um yeah the the forehead india as, as it's become known at back of the grid is still down the bottom of the list regardless if it's pink or not you know i, I saw the pictures of it and i thought you know that's brave, and they've obviously got a lot of money from the sponsors and whatever. But I thought, yeah, yeah that could be all right. And the more I've watched it this weekend, the more I think, oh god, that that just looks terrible going around those corners. Yeah, not a fan. No, it looks like the little little dolphin thing. Yeah, the bullnose dolphin thing. Yeah, looks like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, moving on. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, it's fine. We'll we'll just derail everything. It's cool. Um, Giovinazzi actually replaced Verline come Saturday. Uh, he was in the car for a little bit of FP3, about half an hour. And uh, it, he was also in there for qualifying and then ultimately the race because Verline thinks he wasn't fit enough for a race distance. 
Oh, bless. Interesting. Yeah, but to be fair, Giovinazzi's done a decent job, hasn't he? I'm sure you know Giovinazzi is adored by Chris and myself here at Back of the Grid. Yes, indeed. We were ecstatic when Verline said, I don't want to race. Like, yes, come on, Giovinazzi. Come on, Antonio. Indeed. And, and, you know, he came, he very nearly, other than one mistake, he very nearly out-qualified Ericsson. Yes, he did. And to be fair, he had a good race, which we'll cover briefly during race summary time. Um, but yeah, he's, he's he's definitely making a stake to getting himself an official seat with someone in the very near future. That is for sure. Uh, Grosjean, as well, managed to get the best qualifying performance out of a Haas in the, their year in a race existence, which was a sixth position. Uh, which, I don't know, it's... It's, I always find it really difficult to judge the Haas because ultimately I, I would always say it's a customer car and they're buying a car from Ferrari that's almost a downgraded version of you know what, what they're running. So it just I suppose it depends on how much they're now doing for themselves. But, you know, Haas is not a um a racing name to be sniffed at, is it? You know, they've just no. recently won over in NASCAR. Uh, so it was Daytona, wasn't it? So they, you know, they're a, Has Stewart is a huge name over in the states when it comes to motorsport. So he's not an idiot, you know. He'll buy in what he needs to buy in to get himself successful. And I'm pretty sure he's he's got a good team working behind the car. So it's nice to see him doing well as a, as a newer team in the second year. I think indeed. My my only caveat to all that is that. If you remember back to this time last season, the Ferrari customer cars looked like they were going to do the business and then kind of dropped off throughout the season a little bit. That's true. Over over the course of last season, that Haas did drop away. Uh, and they, they looked like they were in this sort of position, didn't they? You know, they were, first two or three races, they were knocking on the door, getting points, things like that, but dropped away over time. But I think that's more the continuing development of everyone who is a, uh, an established team compared to Haas maybe not being fully up to speed with that kind of environment of how the F1 world works. So hopefully that's something they'll have learned from. But Force Force India have always kind of been one of those teams that tend to start off strong but never go too far in development and sort of tail off towards the end of the year. And that's traditionally what they used to do as well. Yeah, um, that, that probably goes, for budgetary reasons more than anything, I'd yeah, imagine. But. I was just going to say that goes to speak for what I was saying earlier about the smaller teams having a much more restricted budget. And, you know, they, they go for it at the start of the season, but do they have to turn everything down a little bit to make bits last longer and whatever? Yeah. That's. <laughs> should we be putting them in that position is the, is the other thing as well. Indeed, um, yeah. Like should should the sport be putting them in a position where they feel that they've got to underperform to save an engine to avoid issues because of restrictions and limitations? But I'm I'm fairly confident in Liberty Media, especially after teaming up with Ross Braun, that the three of them can, as heads of what they're doing, can kind of come together and keep the sport on the right track. Yeah, indeed. I was on a forum earlier and some somebody said, are these the people to make the sport more entertaining? And my instant thought was, well, Liberty Media are an entertainment company. Yeah, So, of definitely. course, that's going to be the, their end game. That That's how they're going to reach, you know, eventual 
value of what they're purchasing. Yeah, the 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 entire thing behind that, I think, is obviously the t- the two guys who are coming in from a Liberty Media point of view are there to make the show entertaining and interesting to spectators. That that, and I'm sure they wouldn't deny that. The key thing that they've done there is the Ross Braun appointment because he is there from a technical standpoint and a team management standpoint, and and he knows the paddock and the way that the paddock works and the paddock thinks better than possibly anyone else that's already there because of the amount of time he's spent in there and short of going and kind of pulling um patrick head <laughs> out and sticking him in a similar position you know you've got someone there that understands how the how the teams think and what the teams want to almost impart sense as in I know this might be good for ratings or whatever, but it will not work from a team standpoint. And then also on the flip side of the teams would possibly benefit from this, and here's a reason it might be good and the fans will enjoy it. So, I, th- I think the key to Liberty Media and you know all the people there, including Ross Braun, is to slowly, and it, and it seemed to be doing this a little bit, slowly pick away at the politics because it's yeah. it's been a sport driven by the big two or three teams and they've got more influence than all the rest of the teams and they don't want to see their influence dwindle and their their prize money and sponsorship money go down to balance out those smaller teams. And That's it. it. They, they, there was an interesting quote during the um, team principals uh, press conference, which is on, it's on the Friday usually, uh, around free practice time. And they were asked what they think of this whole trying to redistribute the prize money. And the overwhelming response was, well, any team principal who says he's willing to accept less money is insane, and you will not find one. But their whole point was, maybe it's not take away from the rich to give to the poor, it is bring the lower-end prizes up and bring more money out of the big pot that is Formula One and make sure those lower teams are paid better and slightly more on par with higher finishing teams but without punishing the higher finishing teams. Yeah. Which is fair. You can understand that point of view from their, from their aspect. You can. It's where, where do you balance it? Because if you look at other sports, look at football, for example, the, the disparity between a top Premier League team and, and a bottom Premier League yeah. team is huge. And then when you drop down to like a championship and whatever, that it's it's ridiculous the 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 change you get in budget from a, yeah. a very bottom Premier League team to the top of the championship. Uh, so like, how do you balance it? Because it's controversial in football. It's controversial across all sports. And short of having kind of a franchise system. Uh, which I don't think would work in motorsport anyway, then uh, it's very, Big very teams wouldn't like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. yeah. I, I don't see how that will ever get fully resolved. I think it's going to be one of those perpetual issues that people yeah. go on about every single season. What about the proposal of the 25 race season that has aired over this weekend? I don't know if you've heard about that or not. I've seen bits of it. Um, they're talking about, or, or initially, if it, uh, when Liberty Media first took over, they were talking about more 
US racers, weren't they, and to bring it to yes. that audience. And that's not a bad idea, to be honest. If we can get a, another race back in Vegas, and they, talk, they were talking about one near New York, apparently, at one point. It's... Yeah, well, we, we've had the debate before about how is it the Formula E have turned up and gone, let's have a race around this city. Yeah, and it's it's in, but it's taken Formula One so long, and I think it's more the teams. I think being a little picky about oh, the car won't perform around that kind of, you know, and and that's what it is. Because um, to be fair, Monaco can still be a controversial talking point, despite it being the crown jewel of F one, as it's always been referred. It's still a controversial talking point where people. Especially amongst fans, where there's no point in watching Monaco, it's a procession, watch qualifying, and then that's pretty much a result. Then there's other people who just love to see the cars being pushed to the limit around these tiny little southern French streets. Well, it's not France, is it? But close enough. (laughs) Well, close enough, yeah. But (laughs) it is, you know, there's that argument of people are saying that the sport's boring at the minute and it's a procession. No, anything can happen. Just ask Daniel Ricciardo a few days ago as to you know what his ambitions were for the Australian Grand Prix and it all went wrong for him and you know you see people spinning off you see cars coming together doesn't happen as often as it probably used to the sport's a lot safer now but it's also the sport has shifted that little bit more to the strategy side and you know on a on a pure watching fast cars go around a track basis that might not be you know wonderful but if you sit and you actually take the time to work out what the strategies are for yourself, you can get yourself much more involved and engrossed in it. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, so we'll actually move on to the race now. We'll we'll move on somewhat and talk actual race. So we've kind of touched upon Ricardo's unfortunate weekend. I don't think there's much more else to say other than the fact that after he did start from the pits. He managed to get some laps in, and then ultimately the engine gave up on him. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. The, the one thing um, that did stand out for me over this whole thing, going back to quality again, was I didn't understand that rule. I never knew that rule existed that uh, you had you still had a gearbox penalty before the race started, and you have to run it within uh, with five events. Uh, yeah. I, I always thought that if you know if something went wrong before the first race, then you kind of got away with it that little bit. Um, yeah, it's it's effectively it's because it's happened between qualifying and the race. Yeah, because effectively, as soon as qualifying is complete, the cars hit park fermi, and obviously they're allowed to repair the vehicle within reason to you know to bring it back up to a, a race worthy standard, but you're still not allowed to change certain parts uh, without penalties gearbox obviously included yeah and, and so. the, the penalty as i say was the reverse way that the gearbox must be used in five events as well which yeah. I, I never truly full, fully understood that bit and it's uh, it, it's an interesting rule to say the least i think you know he got his five place grid penalty uh, he wasn't having the best of weekends before that after you know his spinning off and whatever but just it's a shame. Yeah, it's such a shame because everybody loves Ricardo, don't they? You can't not like that. Yeah, guy. He's, he is. He is like the smiling, happy man of Formula One. And to be fair, even after the race, you know, there were still smiles from him. He, he can't. I don't think he can help it. I think it must be some kind of medical 
issue he has. <laughs> he just can't yeah. stop smiling. Yeah. yeah, the interview with him after the race, uh, where he was asked, you know, do you think you've used up all your bad luck for the season? And he, he, it's just smiling away when at least I get to go home from this weekend and forget about it now. Yeah. Fair fing, enough. Fing, fingers crossed he's used up a good proportion of bad luck and he has a, a fairly decent run now. Because I do like to see someone like Ricardo do well. Well, him and Verstappen in the the Red Bulls, that that's a, a pretty good driver lineup. That yeah, and definitely. If if you know somebody can challenge the Mercedes and the Ferraris, it's gonna be those two guys in those two cars. So we need him on track. I think I think you've got a potential for an an absolutely awesome top six, effectively, because you've got. Hamilton, who's proven, and Vettel, who's proven. Even Raikkonen's proven. You know, he's a world yeah. champion as well. Um, and then you've got Bottas, who's wanting to prove himself that has tons of potential. Verstappen is exactly the same, wants to prove himself. He's possibly one of the most talented teenagers to have ever sat in an F1 car, mainly because not many teenagers do. Uh, and then Ricardo, who has looked good even since his days down the bottom end at uh, I was HRT, I think, wasn't he, for a little while? Yeah, initially, yeah. Um, before he moved up to Toro Rosso and then, obviously, up to the Red Bull seat. So, you know, he he's always progressed nicely and he's always looked quick. Um, so, if the if the other cars can get on that level of Mercedes, which it looks like Ferrari finally are, or at least very, very close to being, then oh, they'd be an awesome top six. I'd love to see those three teams find it out. Absolutely love it. Yeah, and, and everybody complains about that processional thing that you know it's going to be Hamilton and what was Rosberg. Uh, now I think it's going to be more Hamilton and Vettel than Hamilton and Bottas. By the Fingers crossed. Uh, which splits up the championship uh, for the constructors as well. So that yeah. makes it more interesting. And when the, when the pressure comes on to the constructors for gaining points and having to make decisions down the line on that basis, that should hopefully open up the rest of the field. I think this is the thing where if you've got a title fight, if it's at least between two drivers that are from opposing teams, it instantly becomes more interesting than a title fight between two drivers of the same team, I think, personally. <clears throat> Just because you have got... If you've got two dominant drivers or more dominant drivers in op- opposing teams, it's exactly as, you, as you've said. You know, It's where that second driver's finishing that... Is ultimately affecting the manufacturers, and although the majority of people don't really seem to care about the manufacturers, the manufacturers do. <laughs> you know, how many times have you heard people like Toto Wolf talking about how, you know, it it's not done. We we need to finish this race in this position. We want to see our manufacturers today. Then they can go race. Until then, they're not they're not taking each other out or taking each other on because we want the title. We want that manufacturer's title. Well, that's where so, the prize money is. The prize money isn't well, for yeah, the best exactly. driver. The prize money is for the best constructor of a car. So yeah. they want to get as far up that, that leaderboard as they possibly can. Precisely. But yeah, it, it, obviously for anyone who's not worked out, we've not actually said it yet, but Sebastian Vettel, it's, it's an... It's a simple strategy of one that you don't see very often in Formula One, but an overcut mm. rather than an undercut. 
played to perfection. And Hamilton being a little too twitchy, I think, on his tyres, getting himself stuck in traffic. Well, that, that is ultimately what he's boiled down to, I think. This, I, I this think afternoon. so. I, I think everybody will be praising Vettel, quite rightly so, for you know staying out there, doing that yeah. long, long stint and doing that overcut. <laughs> Timed it to perfection. He just pulled out you know, the perfect gap and then the perfect pit stop to bring him out just in front of Magnussen. But the the thing that will always stand out for me in that whole whole episode was the bad strategy by Hamilton and Mercedes. And, you know, if he's complaining, he was complaining about his tyres from about the fifth lap. Yeah, I I don't know... (laughs) It's a weird one because I don't see him as the kind of person to like make excuses. You know, if for example, if he's made a mistake, I've seen him stand up before and admit to making a mistake. But just something didn't sit right with me the way he complained about the tires so much. Yeah, it's like we we all know that the tires have been improved specifically this season to be more durable, and it's not like he was running in dirty air. You know, he was the lead car, so. Is, yeah, if anything, you'd expect Vettel to be saying, "I can't keep with him at this pace because you know I'm I'm destroying the tires," and you'd have expected it the other way. Um, so I don't know. Maybe but, he was making excuses. Maybe just bad setup for that tire. I don't know. There's obviously something that's happened there, but it comes back to that equal competition thing. Everybody had those tires, and everybody yeah. else made them last till at least lap twenty. And he he came in three laps earlier than that, and which I think Vettel came in on lap twenty four, uh, just to perfect the timing split. Yeah, the um, literally the only person I'm aware of that has made any significant comment about the tyres uh, was Kimi finishing in fourth, and he was just saying that there were I can't remember which of the two it was off the top of my head, but he'd made a comment saying that he was struggling to switch on one of the sets of tyres. And you could see that in his pace, probably the first set, considering he was fastest man yeah. by the end of the day. Uh, there was a, it, it, that could just be a setup thing. It could be a heavy fuel thing. It could be a setup thing, whatever. And and Hamilton could have been in a similar boat where just the way the car was with, with the weight of it or the setup of it just didn't agree. <laughs> you know, actually, something was off. I, I, I probably there probably isn't anything in this whatsoever, but. I'm literally just remembering back to Q2 when Hamilton set his fastest lap in Q2, and that's the tyres you have to run the start the race. Yes. On. And if you remember watching that, all of the graphics and all of the commentary was that he'd done it on a used set of tyres, uh, which then Pirelli said was a barcode issue with those tyres, and it was it was actually a new set. I just wonder if behind the scenes there's been some kind of mix-up with the tyres or something. You never know. Completely possible. I'm amazed you saw some graphics during qualifying, James. Just to have a dig at them for that. Well, it was the same during the race. Half of the graphics are missing. For yeah, it disappeared. They were trying to do the grid line-up and that disappeared halfway as well. And the if you if you rewatch it, the grid lineup it says like first place, second place, then it scrolls down to third and fourth, and then when it got to sixth, that was uh, number three again. Like all the numbers were mixed up as well, bizarrely. Yeah, and then it kept kept stuttering and eventually just went away. I, I think and that, you... <laughs> that I, I kind of in my head I had it because I've done a lot with video computer graphics before, 
And in my head, I'm thinking that they were trying to do it on the fly. Uh, and they'd, they'd changed it because of the Ricardo situation. Uh, try, trying to, on the fly, almost improve it, as they would think, because Ricardo wasn't there. Yeah. And, and yeah, from, maybe, maybe. from memory, I think they took Ricardo out of it as well. So that might contribute to that. But, but there's been problems with the graphics all weekend. Yeah. So uh, retirements. There were quite a number of retirements. We only had 13 finishers. But do you expect that at the first race of a season? I don't know. Do you? Yeah. You've only had a few days of testing and a few days of practice, haven't you? It's, it's going to happen where there's new parts and new cars and new setups all, all involved. And, you know, you can even expect it into the second and third race of the season, I think. Uh, they're getting used to how to get the best out of these cars and just one tweak too far and you, you've got a retirement there, haven't you? I think the other thing to consider as well is we've only had eight full solid days of testing this yes, yeah. this year and one of those days was, in inverted commas, wet test. The day that they <laughs> let the truck drive Spray around test. with water. <laughs> Just a truck with water spilling it on a hot Spanish asphalt, which instantly evaporated. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was like a lost day. So effectively, let's just say seven days of proper dry running they've had. Um, Williams had probably about five because Lance Stroll kept putting it in barriers. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's been definitely condensed and limited. And then you go into a, to be fair, not not the most punishing of tracks, but it is a street track. It is a bumpy surface, and it's probably fairly punishing on the cars because there's a few things that during the race went down as potential suspension issues, which ultimately weren't. And we'll cover that up in the Park Fermi roundup bit. But there were a number of things that were being assumed to be that because I think it's just because of the nature of the track, isn't it? And and then new cars on a on a new environment as well. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head. The kind of track it is as well. You know, the the bumps. There's lots of kind of ninety degree turns, so there's going to yeah. be lots of. Uh, movement in that car and lots of forces happening from all different sides yeah and the new cars and they're getting used to it so yeah expect only a one, few retirements only one significant crash though yeah i was i was quite surprised at that we, we had a really kind of clean start didn't we yeah well i was amazed when we got i saw a lot of smoke going into turn one as in tire smoke but yeah Everyone got through clean, just about. A couple of like sort of slightly wide lines, rumble strips and stuff, but everyone got through. We then got to turn three, and Magnussen decided to plough into Ericsson. Um, but to be fair, it wasn't that. It wasn't a, like a lunge or anything. It was just I think he was unfortunate in clipping the inside curb, and it, it unsettled the car. And it's a tightly packed scenario, isn't it? You got cars everywhere, and it. I don't think there was much Magnussen could have done to prevent it. To be honest, which is why he wasn't punished, but yeah, that no, was it. That was I, all we had, really. I think we've seen, you know, maybe hopefully the start of some new kind of um, during race decisions of, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt. It's just a, a, a racing incident. There wasn't many well, other incidents other than that to judge that on, but I think that's kind of what they, uh, they're going to officially. Officially, the rule has been uh, slackened a little in the sense that. Unless a driver can be heavily put to blame for an incident, 
they're not going to take action on it. So that that's a prime example of something that technically it's Magnussen's fault. You know, Magnussen's made the mistake, hit the curb, taken out another driver, which ultimately has ended his race. Again, we'll cover it a little later. But it, that is a scenario where you may have seen a stop and go or something during a pit stop in a couple of previous seasons because he has caused the the incident. But they're always more lenient on first laps. So had it been 20 laps in, you might have seen a stop go in previous seasons. I think on a first lap, third corner, I don't think you're going to see anything. Any, You know, for the last 10 years, you wouldn't have seen anything for that. Uh, so Maybe it's a weird there. one. It's hard. It's hard to judge how they have altered the rule, which they're saying that they have, based on that one sole incident on turn three of lap one. Yeah, yeah, fair point. So I'm, I'd be interested to see when somebody really, in my opinion, takes somebody out, as does happen. I'd be interested to see how they handle it. So yeah. I'm waiting for someone going too hot up the inside of someone at the end of the long straight in China into that hairpin because it's going to happen yeah, yeah. So, you know, let's see how they handle it <laughs> I, I also found it amusing in the commentary on Sky uh, where Martin Brundle kind of suggested to Christian Horner as they were talking to him that Ricardo knocked somebody off the track so that they can get a safety car <laughs> I didn't spot that bit. Did you not? He kind of, kind no. of suggested it, and, and Christian Horner's diplomatic reply was, "Well, you've you've got the uh, the, the commentary. Sorry, I yes, say that, but yeah, but we, I can't you're, possibly comment. Yeah, you're in the commentary position to say that. I couldn't possibly comment. I do remember now. Sorry, yeah, yeah, just knock somebody off, get a safety car. <laughs> Interesting tactics, Martin. Yeah, do it a couple of times, and you know you're, you're back. That's up. it. You're back in race. You're back in the race." Um, Alonso, in my opinion, was a little unlucky considering he had a rubbish car. Yes. Uh, and he almost, almost was making the points until he had what was ultimately a problem with the floor. That was one of the things that we thought was uh, a suspension issue. He thought it was a suspension issue as well, but it turned out it was damage to the underside of the car um, that was just basically making it undrivable for him. Um, and it was only so that seven was laps from the end as well. Yeah, it was quite close to the end. Yeah, um, such a shame. It is. Uh, Van Dorn was in a similar situation, though, because Van Dorn ended up ultimately finishing in 13th, but yeah. he will have lost, I'm not sure exactly how much time, but he lost a good chunk of time having to do his forced reboot of the system when he lost everything on the dash and he couldn't see like what engine mode he was in and, and all that kind of stuff lost it and maybe that's where the the good argument of drivers shouldn't have to be reliant on all this technology and stuff to be able to drive the cars that's a good example of a race that that has ruined because that's failed he's lost 30 seconds to a minute or whatever it may be trying to fix that problem plus whatever time he's lost on track by not being able to see the information he's expecting to be able to see and there is a potential that it could have been slightly higher up the order if it wasn't for that. Yeah, and you need to consider as well that all these people that say that the technology benefits them too much, uh, yeah, they, they will have lost lots more things, but simple things like your gear indicator. 
And Martin Brundle, I was surprised at this. Martin Brundle was saying, you know, he's going to have to count up and count down as he's going through the gears. And to do that whilst you're flying around corners at 200 miles yeah. an hour, it's just, just ridiculous. It's, it's a weird one because as much as you would expect a professional racing driver to know what gear they are in, it's it's not easy to do it blind. If If you... For example, if you put yourself in that scenario of a paddled gearbox, you've got nothing. At least with a stick shift <laughs> gearbox, you know you you can physically feel where you are in in the gearbox. With a paddle shift gearbox, it is ultimately guesswork unless you've got something that tells you. Uh, and I wouldn't want to try and do it. Like, or, or even though I can imagine, I'm. Down a straight, so I'm in, what, they've got eight gears now, I think, those engines. So I'm in eighth, and I want to shift down twice for turn one and then back up. And But to then be thinking about that and thinking, right, now so now I'm in sixth, I'll shift up, that means I'm in seventh, but I want to drop down to fourth for turn three. And to, to, to be thinking all that, that's what practice is for. You find your sweet spots, what, what you like and how you want to drive the car around the track then you should just be able to visually do that. And I think that's harsh on Van Dorn to have been put in the situation he was. Yeah. If, if you kind of put the comparison out there, that these drivers are essentially like road versions of uh, fighter pilots. They're, they're yeah. very physically the same. They've got reactions very similar. And you wouldn't expect a fighter pilot to go out and fly through the sky where there's no walls or other cars generally <laughs> and not have that heads up display information that they That's can true. that they can see. So why would you expect somebody going at 100 200 miles an hour around a course with other people and walls and spectators and ev- stewards and everything? Why would you expect them not to have that information? That is very true. Raikkonen was fastest man on the day. We mentioned it briefly earlier. It was a 126.5 well, 0.538 which didn't actually be Schumacher's lap record round the track for a race day, but that was beaten in qualifying. But the way track records work means that the track record is still Schumacher's, weirdly. Yeah, yeah. it's got to be done during a race. But there was a number of drivers fighting it out for that, wasn't there? At yeah. one point, the radio message going back and forth of like, I want to do the, the lap yeah. record, and, and then the the engineers coming back and saying, Oh, please don't. <laughs> like, the, the, the one, the best one for me was Verstappen. Yeah, it was. Um, how much faster is the fastest lap? <laughs> and his engineer just came back and I went too fast, <laughs> and that was yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But then, like, oh, Max. again in the commentary, they, they made the point of should the fastest lap be a championship point? Well, it is in other series. Yeah. It isn't even even the step down into GP two or F two uh, things like that. They have points for fastest lap. I think it's worth looking into and trying to implement that because even if, even if like Vettel had gotten it, it had got twenty six points rather than twenty five or whatever. Yeah, but it's it applies in Formula E as well because um, the last Formula E race, Sam Bird sat in the pits after having to retire his first car, and then waited and went out in the second car, but kind of went out like eight laps down or something ridiculous because he'd sat and waited and I'm still of the belief that I think that's because he was trying to get a point for fastest lap but mm. if you then don't finish the race, the fastest lap doesn't count because you've not finished 
Yeah. So he was like waiting and purposely putting himself a number of laps down to go out and do a fastest lap. And I suppose the only concern is would you want your highest class of motorsport to have drivers maybe trying to do that because they know that they can sit in the garage, fix a problem they've got with the car for 10 laps, then go out for 10 at the end and try and bag a point. I don't know. Well, fair play to them if they do that. It's yeah. I think it's fair enough. I think what it would do is it's just one of those extra little building blocks that's a tiny incentive for everybody to push themselves that bit further. True. Because that, that person who sits in the garage for 10 laps, anybody can do that. And <laughs> it's like they're not going to want to. But also, you run the risk of, if you do that, then somebody on track could just do the fastest lap anyway, so you lose out on both yeah. counts. I, I, specifically, I'm thinking more someone who's got a problem with the car that's rectifiable but would take time to rectify. They'd normally just retire it and call it a day. And I'm wondering if would it cause them to rectify the problem and go out for a few laps at the end on low fuel. I don't know if they can actually physically remove fuel from a car, though, because obviously they'd have high fuel from the time that they came in. I don't yeah, think they're physically works. allowed to remove it during a race. And you could you could just say that it only counts if you do the full race distance. Yeah. No, there's ways around it, I guess. There you go. See, you've solved it, James. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll introduce that next season then. Another another reason for us to get in touch with Ross Braun. That's two weeks and two solutions. <laughs> Indeed. We're we're basically taking over the FIA. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Give it time. <laughs> um, so, in in sort of summary, statistically. There's a number of statistics about the race I find quite interesting. Um, this was Vettel's 43rd win, which I'm not surprised to hear. But it's Ferrari's first Australia win since Kimi Raikkonen in 2007. Which I suppose in a way makes sense because you got Jensen, you got Lewis Jensen, Sebastian Vettel... And then Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg, and you kind of you can kind of see in your head where everything went from 07, uh, with another Kimi win thrown in when he was at Lotus a couple of years. Well, I say a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, when he first came back. It does kind of match the time that Ferrari have been the bridesmaids rather than the brides, yeah. doesn't it? So it kind of makes sense when you think about it. it. Does it does seem an awful long time, but when you think yeah. about it, I think it's, it's about years. right. Yeah. 10 years. Uh, it's also the first time they've won an opening race since Alonso won in Bahrain in 2010. Yeah. Which is seven years. And he almost, I almost forget Alonso was there to a certain degree. It's weird. You know, because I know well. he won there. I, he does now. Now that car's competitive, he wishes he would, He wishes he yeah. was still there, I bet. I, I bet he does. I bet he, he wakes up with cold sweats in the middle of the night thinking of that. See, especially when he sees Vettel on the top step now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and weirdly, this is this is another one that threw me. It's only the second time Vettel has won the opening race. Really? Of the season. That yeah, the only other time Sebastian Vettel has won the opening race was 2011, and that was the season that he properly dominated and just walked away with it. Yeah, that, that is That's, a surprise. That's, uh... That is a weird one. Um it's it's interesting because the the statistic that I heard thrown around was that since 2000, 11 of the winners of the opening race have gone on to be champion. But when you look at recent history, 
it doesn't really apply that much. <laughs> no. The last couple have, because it was Rosberg last season and Hamilton before that. But then there's a weird spell where like Raikkonen won races, Hamilton won them, um, Button won one for McLaren, but Vettel was winning the titles during that time. Uh, and then during the time between Schumacher's dominance and Vettel, it was kind of a bit of a free-for-all. And I think there was a, even a... There was a really oddball one in there, I think. I can't think what it was off the top of my head now. I've not got any stats in front of me. I'm winging it. But, <laughs> yeah, it was interesting to look back at them, for sure. Yeah, no, that yeah. is an interesting fact. Just just as well, whilst we're on Vettel, what, at what point, because I can't remember this in my own head, at what point did he actually become quite a nice guy? Because in the my time, head, I hated him. And, and the time all sudden, they stopped now, dominating. I don't it's know. Weird. Even beyond Joining that, Ferrari changed him seriously. Yeah, I, I think it I don't is know what Ferrari. it is. I don't think it's Ferrari themselves, but that move from Red Bull to Ferrari, he's a different man to me. I, <laughs> while he was at Red Bull, I just saw him as an arrogant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah indeed. Didn't want anything to do with him. And you know what's weird? He, the finger came back out earlier. Yeah, and I didn't mind. I was I was going to say exactly wow, that. Wow, I hated that during Red Bull because it was the arrogance that the way he did it. It wasn't just the finger; yeah. it was the way it was arrogance. Like, yeah, it, it was when he used to do it when he was dominant. It was like, yeah, you know what you can do with that finger, don't you? Yeah, but, exactly. But, but I think he's since Ferrari and uh, since they've been working on the car and trying to like get up to Mercedes standard. Uh, I think he's been a bit more humble, and that's kind of what. What's made yeah. ingratiated him to people? I, I'm worried that Hamilton's going the other way now and turning into what Vettel was. I hope he doesn't. I, I can see exactly what you mean, and I really hope he doesn't because the problem is, is people with Hamilton are already divided. Like even all the Brits don't like him because they think he's arrogant. Yeah. So if he actually becomes arrogant, because I don't think he is, or he wasn't at least, if he actually becomes properly arrogant, I think he's gonna struggle i was i was very interested by the crowd reaction to him on the podium as well earlier because it wasn't quite booze or anything but it wasn't felt a bit negative reception yeah yeah whether whether that's because he's a brit and you know he's the whole aussie brit thing and he's just like jests and jokes and that's why it wasn't quite a proper it wasn't like, you know, when after Rosberg crashed into Hamilton at Spa, he got jipped for it on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was boos and jeers. And we've seen it, but I don't think that was what we saw today was that. But there was definitely a negative undertone to the reaction to Lewis being on the podium, which was weird. Because what did he do wrong? I, especially if you were there, because you probably wouldn't have heard the radio messages if you were there. So literally, what did he do wrong? Yeah, indeed. I, I, so I I can't understand that. I I didn't understand it when I watched it, and even thinking back, I can't even think as to why. But he he got them back on side by doing his usual. Oh, look at the crowd, the brilliant thing. I think that's genuine, though. I do think that's genuine. I think he he appreciates things like that. He does it every single race, and it's kind of it's it's kind of like a catchphrase now, and so it feels insincere. Yeah. 
and that, that just leads on to you know that that whole point of is he turning into that bit more of an arrogant person like Vettel used to be in his dominant years. I think as well though that I think you've got to have some ego and arrogance. We've we've sort of touched on this before, oh, but you need you've got to have some ego and arrogance to do the job because at the end of the day you're not going to be a world champion being a nice guy. Never going to happen. I'll take that on board. I also go back to a point you made earlier about Hamilton. He does stand up for his mistakes, and uh, even today, Generally. even today with the the pit call um, in the interview, he said it, it was his decision. And yeah, actually, Toto Wolff's come out afterwards and said it wasn't just his decision. We looked at the telemetry, we looked at the the uh, temperatures and pressures, and we brought him in as a collective thing. But Hamilton was willing to take that on the chin for the rest of the team. I. I think he wanted to to make the change, which is evident from his radio messages. I think the 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 point where the team maybe failed him this weekend was they're experts at working out where you're going to fall on track. They must have known there was a risk of falling behind Max Verstappen in the way that they did. Mm-hmm. They must have known, and I just can't imagine why that conversation didn't happen. Of we can pull you in now, Lewis, but you're going to fall behind Verstappen who could be difficult to overtake and it could compromise you against Vettel. And but, that but, you never heard that. Whether that conversation happened, I suppose, is in dispute because we never heard it. That must so have if happened. he then said, that's it, no, I don't care, bring me in. But it, you know, if I was him in that scenario and I heard that, I'd have thought, what's the better option then? They'd have said, give it two more laps, literally two more laps, it'll drop you into clean air, we'll be good. And you'd have kind of tried to make do. Yeah, and and that must have happened at Mercedes because uh, I think it was Crofty on the Sky commentary said that he'd spoken to an engineer who told him that the overcut was key in this race and they'd looked at everything. Ah, fine. And and that that engineer happened to be Bottas's engineer, so <laughs> Mercedes knew of that strategy. Uh, just it was just a circumstance. Something there must have been something there that made them think that was the right thing to do. But you yeah. could see by Toto Wolff's reaction when uh, Vettel came out of the pits in front that you know you, you could see that they knew they made a big mistake. Then uh, the only thing to say about Hamilton this weekend, I suppose, on a on a slightly more positive note for him, is um, he's now joined Michael Schumacher in being the only person to lead over three thousand laps and also lead one hundred races. Yeah, it's legendary status, is isn't it? A, a, a feat in itself. Like he's been in the sport now ten years, so luckily for him, he's always been in a fairly competitive team. Even when McLaren were starting to slump, you know, he was still able to win races, and so was Jensen at that stage. Yeah. So he's been lucky to some degree because he started his career in a championship-winning car. But by the by, they're still impressive statistics that you know. Other drivers in similar levels of cars have not matched. Yeah, you always look at statistics like that and you think in 10, 20, 30 years' time when we're looking back on this era, you know, that that is legendary status. It's going to stand out a yeah. mile and everybody's going to remember him for that. And hopefully, you know, he's still got quite a few years left in him. Hopefully he's going to add to that more and more. Yeah. He, he could become, you know, bigger than Schumacher in a way. Who knows? There's potential. With his age currently, and you know the team around him and so on, yeah, there's definitely potential. And we know he's not scared to move move teams if he sees a better option, which is good. Yeah, indeed, indeed. 
So, who would you say is your driver of the day? Because I have a couple of options I would suggest. I think there's an obvious option, and then there's an understated option. But I'd like to know your opinion, James. I definitely think, you know, just for sheer consistency, it has to be Vettel for me. And that's the yeah. most obvious one, though, the man out in front. and That's that's the obvious yeah. one. That's the guy who won the official vote on the F1 website. All right. My secondary call is Giovinazzi. Yeah, he, he was going to be my little shout-out, I think, because... Yeah, uh, and that that's who I'd personally give it to. And, yeah, I know he's not finishing the points or anything, but... I think to jump into that car after... Don't get me wrong, I know he did testing, but to jump in that car Saturday afternoon with like half a practice session, get back into it, almost out-qualify the team here. I know he was unlucky in some respects and made a little mistake, but then to also finish the race and be vaguely competitive in a, a sort of a lower-end car... Uh, to to give him the yardstick that is becoming the traditional back of the grid thing of is he better than Bruno Senna? <laughs> yes, he is. Well, as, as by well, a long way. <laughs> yeah, I I can't disagree with that. I also think that you just love Giovinazzi anyway. So we do, but <laughs> is he better than Bruno Senna? Yeah. Yes, yes, he is. <laughs> but also, it's it's about how he's conducted himself for the weekend as well. He's been professional. Yeah. He didn't cause Very. any problems. You know, he, he was competitive whilst not getting in people's way. Uh, you know, it's easy for a rookie driver in F1 to come in on their first first race and knock somebody off the track, and he, he didn't do anything. Never looked even close to doing anything like that. Yep. All, all this, all this is why I voted him driver of the day personally. Yeah, it's a good show, and uh, you Thanks, know, James. I'm, I'm sure that you've got your Giovinazzi doll that you're going to kiss later because you love him too much. Oh, I ain't got a doll yet. <laughs> Although, if he gets an actual seat, I'll buy loads of merch. Definitely, I think he's number thirty-six. I might just buy a Sauber shirt and paint thirty-six on it myself. Yeah, yeah, do it. That's that's good enough. Uh, it'll match the rest of my gear because I've got like a lot of Williams gear, which is dark blue, and Sauber's dark blue this year, so it all fits, all works. That Sauber looks gorgeous as well, by the way. I had to, it, it's a weird one that for me. I really liked it at first, and it has, I don't know, it it dropped a little in my opinion after I started seeing other cars, but. It's still there or thereabouts. I think it's definitely it, better than the Forehead India. <laughs> it's another one of those classically designed ones. It's it's not overstated. And as well, I'd, we have to give a shout out to Sauber. It was their 25th year in uh, Formula One as well. It is. Yeah. Uh, and all I can say about the livery is it just reminds me of a Rothmans Williams. It does. It's a lot like that, yeah. Um, that's, I think that's why I like it, because it reminds me of Rothman Williams. It's a vast Back improvement. Back when cigarettes were the key sponsors of the sport. <laughs> yes, yeah. With the barcode on the Ferrari, I love that one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's a massive improvement from having a Chelsea badge on it, at least. Yes, anything's an improvement from having a Chelsea <laughs> badge on it. <laughs> Uh, move of the day. What what would you, you got a preference? I've I've noted down three things that I'd consider move of the day. I don't know what your personal preference would be. For for me, I think um, that little three way tussle. Uh, it was it was Olkenberg, uh, Alonso, and uh, Ocon, wasn't it? Yeah, that and, is the one. And all in all, in very very plain 
uh, playing coloured cars as well, so it looked like traffic lights going up and down the the, <laughs> the, the track. Um, but yeah, just, I, there's something about when you not only have somebody trying to pass somebody else, and then there's a third car that comes in, and you know that that visual of three cars wheel to wheel is just brilliant to me. It is, it, especially with these low, wide, aggressive cars as well. Yeah, I think that that adds to it, but. That is probably my official personal move of the day was the three of them. Not only because it was three car wide, but the fact that it started in the penultimate turn, went through the last two turns of of the track, went down the start finish straight and went into turn one and then into turn two. And they were still tussling it out to a certain extent going into turn three. And it went for like a whole sector of track. Yeah. It was just the three of them battling it out and... I feel sorry for Alonso because I think if he had a bit of power, he could have maybe kept up with them and made it carry on even longer. But it was still a nice tussle to see three cars like that fighting it out properly. And they say that no one will be able to overtake in this new era of Formula One. Oh, that, Rubbish. That's another thing that annoys me a little bit. Yeah, we we don't get the passes of yesteryear. And the majority of passes nowadays come from DRS. Um but there was uh, in the stats that I was looking at, there was 23 overtakes in in the race today. Uh, 16 of them were under DRS, but it is happening, and you know that's improving yeah. year on year as well. Generally, agree. Uh, I'd, I'd consider Vettel's pit stop uh, for move of the day. Yeah, just because it was timed to perfection in terms of when it was done how quickly it was executed and where it dropped him out on track. And to be honest, in in an age where you're making a, a single stop and changing tyres, speed is key, uh, as William showed, by sort of being three seconds and sub <laughs> all season last season. But to, to do what they did and drop Vettel back on track where they did, I think is as good as an overtake. Whether Vettel shot him, yeah. sorry, whether Lewis shot himself in the foot or not, I think that particular pit stop was a key move. Oh, it was masterfully done, and you know that's the obvious one. I would argue that's more a strategy of the day than a move of the day because it was how they went about it and kept him out for so long, uh, extended his stint that little bit, so they had the exact timings that they wanted to come out in front and to bring him out literally like hundredths of a second. Into in front of uh, Verstappen at the time he was in front of Hamilton, like it was just a genius move all around. Indeed, just don't make me create a new category for the <laughs> podcast of strategic move of the day. We, we could have one for everything, couldn't we? Tire change of the day. <laughs> There's enough as it is. <laughs> um, there was another move that I will give a shout out for, and that was Perez on science at turn three. Um, oh yeah. It was a bit of a lunge down the inside. No, sorry, it wasn't. It was the other way around. It was a lunge round the outside, in fact, um, causing Science to lock up to avoid hitting him. But it was a it was a nice aggressive move, and I think it was within reason as well because he was past Science. Uh, he was he was the lead car. He was in front of him, so it was within his rights to take the corner the way he did. I think personally. So I think it was a nice, aggressive move, and it's the kind of move you want to see in these nice, um, fast cornering cars. You want to see moves like that going into and around corners, I think. Yeah, but nobody does any overtaking in Formula 1 anymore. 
I think that proves that, that statement wrong. And it was one of those where, where you say it wasn't something you'd expect and it was uh, yeah. going, going around that outside. It didn't look like it was going to come to much at first and then it just stuck. It was great. I'm glad you agree. Um, we have a section here that I'm not sure how we're going to fill it this week, but I just want to play the soundbite. Uh, and I'm sure you already know the soundbite, James. <laughs> yeah. And our already regular listeners will also know the soundbite. But we'll play it. And we'll just find something to fit it. So I'm just going to play it because I like to play it every week. Out of the race goes Pecky Inouye. And Maldonado tries to go around the outside of it. They almost touch, but they're not quite. But it was the over. Oh, they hit! Outside, oh, Hamilton's in the wall! Honestly, what the f*** are we doing here? <laughs> Jonathan Ledgard every week. <laughs> Makes me laugh every time. They were alongside it. Don't jump on, jump on, no, no, no. <laughs> Every time, every time. Good old Maldonado. Um, yeah, it's the what the F are we doing here section, which is usually reserved for ridiculous crashes or ridiculous decisions or just, just generally poor performance. But it's hard to pinpoint something to really give this particular thing to this week. I it was, think it was a clean race, and we didn't even have yeah. a safety car, did we? So nothing no. massively untoward happened. The I'd be tempted to put it at whoever fitted Ricardo's gearbox. <laughs> yeah, I'd blame maybe him. Which, um, which time? The the one that failed on the way to the grid. That one. <laughs> yeah. Um, Palmer's spins and blaming it on brakes. Maybe that's just. I don't know, do you blame the brakes or do you blame him? Well, Palmer blamed everything, didn't he? He was like, it's the brakes, it's the balance, it's a rubbish car. Like, literally just came out and said, you know, it's, it's a bad car. Like, yeah. My, my, If I was forced to pick a what is going on here kind of moment, it's Verline being a puss. <laughs> End of. <laughs> it does feel a bit odd, doesn't it? That, as I was saying earlier, these these... Drivers are supposed to be in peak physical condition. I, I know he's he's hurt his back, hasn't he? And it's a torrid time in that car for like an hour and a half, two hours, or whatever. But yeah, to to pull out and like volunt voluntarily pull out as well, not have the doctor say you know you can't race this this one, you need to sit it out. Just doesn't yeah, work th- for me. I think as well it, it's highlighted uh, some examples that have been given over the course of the weekend since he made the decision where. Things like the time when Mark Webber was throwing up in his helmet and stuff like that. And, you know, there's people yeah. driven in, in literally physically sick conditions and still done it. So it makes you wonder. But but, but then, you know, I, I'm i terrible for being a hypochondriac. And I, if I feel like I've got a few sniffles and I, then I want to go and lie down on the sofa. So I, I can kind of understand it from his point of view to some extent from, <laughs> from a personal Perspective. Would you give it to anything in particular then? Oh, I, I don't know. There's literally nothing. I mean, for me, the Ricardo situation is—it's the biggest downer of the weekend for me. And yeah, I think I'd probably give it to the the multitude of uh, mishaps that was Ricardo's weekend. That's fair enough, I think. Um, we did some predictions as well last episode. Yeah, I've been uh, been waiting to hear how this turned out. Well, it's turned out well for two of us. <laughs> the third, who we will find out momentarily, is 
going to struggle this season if he carries on that way. Um, so what we've decided to do is start a little prediction game between the three of us, the main hosts of the show. And a fortnight ago, we decided to predict a pole sitter, a winner, the first retirement, uh, a random driver's finishing position, and then the number of finishers of the race. Uh, and we're going to do like a little league table and do it every week. Now, pole sitter, Chris predicted what was ultimately correct, Lewis Hamilton. I went completely left field and said Kimi Raikkonen, and Stu said Vettel, which in hindsight wasn't too bad of a shout. Mm. So we have awarded Chris a single and solitary point for winning on the basis that he was the only person to suggest Lewis Hamilton, <laughs> oddly. Uh, who who would you think you would have gone for before the race, James? I, I think Hamilton's, you know, with, with Rosberg not being there as well, I think Hamilton's a, a nailed on for most qualifiers for me. Yeah. From a winning point of view, Chris amazingly said Vettel for that too, so got that one nailed on. Uh, so that's two points to Chris so far. Wow. Uh, I went, again, totally left field and went Bottas and realised I may have a secret thing for Finns. Uh, and <laughs> Stu said Hamilton. So basically, got the two correct drivers just in the correct incorrect categories. Yeah. So Stu's on nothing at this point. I'm on nothing. And Chris is on two whole points because he's on fire. Or is he? Um, would you have said Vett, uh, Hamilton or Vettel for the win? Or, or somebody completely different, James? I, I again would have said Hamilton. I think yeah. I, I kind of played along as I was listening, and I was like, "Yeah, I think uh, I think that would be Hamilton as well." Okay, then first retirement. Who did you play along with there? Who did you think would go out first? I, I would have said Stroll because. So you with you me know, then? That was my yeah. choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ba- yeah. Based on the fact he's a rookie going into turn one, which is a pretty tight turn with extra wide cars this season I, you know it could have happened uh, based on his performance in testing as well because he's, yeah. he didn't have the best of test did he and he crashed it in quality no practice yeah. sorry yeah indeed so uh, yeah I, I went with Stroll and I actually won half a point for that because even though it wasn't correct with Grosjean being the first out um, I was the first person whose retiree did go out so I got a half point for Stroll uh, Chris and Stu kind of went down the McLaren's not doing very good route and said, <laughs> Chris said Alonso and Stu said Van Dorn, um, which I think was just based purely on the Honda situation. Yeah. So that gave me a half point at least. Uh, and then the random driver for this week was Daniel Kvyat. Uh, where would you think you would have put him before the race, James, saying that you did it? You did you know, I, I genuinely can't remember what I, what I said for that. And I, I sh- I think I'd have put. Don't him say ninth because that's just cheating. No, I, th- I think I think I would have put him around about you know bet- between tenth and twelfth generally. I think. Well, Chris said twelfth, and I said tenth. Stu was a little more optimistic and said seventh, and ultimately, mm. as we know, Danny finished in ninth. So none of us were bang on, but I do get half a point for being the closest in tenth. So. I'm on a whole full point now. This is going all right for me. And I think, judging by what I said before we did the prediction roundup, you can kind of tell where this is going for Stu. (laughs) (laughs) And then the last category we did was number of finishers. So did you have any kind of guess on that when you were playing along that you can remember? I think I went with you on 16. That is what I said. I said 16. 
Uh, I thought people are going to have issues. Didn't expect as many issues as we had, <laughs> but I thought people are going to have them. Uh, Chris and Stu were much more optimistic than me. Stu said 17 and Chris said 18. Although Stu was trying to strategically go between the two of us, I think, because he picked last. <laughs> yeah. But ultimately, we had 13 finishes this week, so that was another half point for me being nearest, which effectively leaves the predictions table with Chris leading the way with two points, me rounding up with close estimates in 1.5 points, and Stu is yet to score. And I think, James, you'd have technically scored a few points, wouldn't you? I, th- I think so, looking back on that, yeah. Yeah, or at least uh, at least like a point and a half along my kind of lines. Yeah. Yeah, I just need to stop being um, along the lines of, this is what I want to happen, Raikkonen and Bottas, <laughs> and a little yeah. more realistic of, this is what's going to actually happen. You, you did say as you were predicting that you were going for the more left-field stuff that, that you didn't necessarily expect to happen. So, yeah, props to you for you know going a bit different. It's just that I like the fins. <laughs> as, as we've seen, yeah. I think that's all it is. I was a Hakkinen fan back in the day. I've always been a Raikkonen fan, and I am a Bottas fan. I think it, I don't know what it is. I just think it's the the whole aura that they have of, yeah, I'm here, I'm fast. What of it? Because that's basically what they're all like. It's just yeah, they're very very chilled out people, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'll do a very quick Park Ferme roundup just because we've kind of covered majority of this during the show anyway, but I'm sort of working from the back of the finishing order up to the front. Um, but to quickly just sum up everything in case there is anything we've missed, uh, starting with Haas. So neither driver made it to the end for Haas. Uh, Grosjean with what looked initially like a turbo issue or even an engine issue, but apparently ended up being a water leak that was just unfixable and caused him to retire. And Magnussen had a rear suspension failure towards the end of the race, causing him to also retire, uh, but not linked directly to the crash that he had with Ericsson anyway. Uh, McLaren, Alonso retired towards the end of the race, as we know, with what people thought was a suspension issue at the time, but as we've already said, looked to be flow damage, uh, and that's coming from Eric Boulier as well. Uh, Van Dorm. Managed to bring it home in 13th, despite his extra-long pit stop for his system reboot. Um, uh, Alonso did look weirdly like scoring points, so it is a bit of a shame, as we've already said as well. But fingers crossed things are on the up for McLaren, because secretly we do want them to do well. Uh, I don't know about you, James. I'm saying we. By we, I mean me, Chris and Stu. (laughs) I I think somebody said it on the television earlier that McLaren's everybody's second favorite team, isn't it? If, if, if you've not got, favorite, yeah. If, if not, if it's not your favorite, it's your second favorite. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm a fan of McLaren, just not the orange at the minute. That's fine. I can, yeah, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> uh, Sauber Ericsson eventually retired after the accident with Magnussen. Uh, the accident itself, when he hit the side pod, uh, caused hydraulic damage. Uh, and just basically more issues of the car arose due to that. Uh, and all I can say is uh, just a great drive from Giovinazzi to get in that car and do what he did, even if he was outside the points. So, uh, Interesting. I know we could never tell, but where do you think that Whirline would have finished in that? Would, would he have finished? In that car, yeah. I'd have probably put him about where Giovinazzi was. If, 
you know, they, that that's a car for me that's going to be 11th, 12th, 13th most weeks, sort of knocking on the door for points but never getting in. And in weekends like this where a number of cars are dropping out, they're probably going to sort of maybe have a sniff. Um, but I think generally speaking, the, the, the best they're going to hope for is being just shy of the points in like 11th, 12th, 13th. That's a good weekend for them, I think, going forward. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think it'd have finished on a similar basis. So, yeah. Giovinazzi, you know, in that car, if it, that might be that car's limits, and so he did very well to end up where he did. For for me, it's a little bit being too much of a supporter of Giovinazzi, and also just a little bit of admiration for jumping in the car at short notice and getting on with it and doing a good job. Indeed. So, uh, Renault dreadful weekend for Palmer, spun it and crashed it into just about everything possible and blamed it on everything possible except himself. Uh, Hulkenberg fared a little better, but was still out of the points, unfortunately, finishing just short in 11th. Uh, with Forehead India, uh, Esteban Ocon got his first point in his 10th attempt. Uh, obviously, he was at Manor towards the end of last season. Um, Perez got a respectable drive, fairly quiet other than the overtake move we've discussed, and came home in 7th. Uh, Toro Rosso again, both cars finished in the points. That was uh, 8th for Sainz and 9th for Kvyat. Kvyat kind of had the 7th place on for him, but he had to pit for a weird air issue. He needed more air, apparently, according to the team. I'm not, I'm not sure what that meant, but he needed more air. Wow. So he didn't want to pit. I do remember him coming on the radio and saying, like, no, I don't want to. What's, you know, why? And, like, no, you need to or you're not going to finish. Yeah, I, so, I genuinely don't know what that was about either. Uh, so. I'm, I'm still yet to dig enough to work out what the, what was going on there. So, But it's still a points finish, so things are looking up for Danny after what was a pretty torrid year last year. Uh, Williams, Massa, who we've not talked about surprisingly at all, <laughs> uh, showed that he still has got it despite coming out of retirement to, uh, to compete this season and finished sixth. Uh, he was some way off Max Verstappen, about a minute behind him, I think, in the end. But not a bad performance from a guy who was expecting to be putting his feet up and maybe doing a little bit of Formula E this season. Uh, and Stroll was forced to retire due to a brake failure, due to some damage to a brake disc. So, any any comment on sort of either of those two? We've not really mentioned them that much, James. No, no, we haven't. I think Massa's one of those drivers. That he's I've got a lot of respect for him, but I don't really like him. And I, I yeah, I never never really have done. Um, yeah. The whole coming out of retirement thing, like after zero races missed, that's that's just weird in itself. <laughs> um, just think he, he could have been on a beach in uh, what was it they said on the telly, a, a beach on, on Miami or something uh, with yeah. Button. Um, but yeah, he's he's come back and he's, he'll always be that middle of the pack driver in that car, won't he? I think in that car is is you know you're not going to be able to achieve anything much better than fourth constructors wise are you? Um, maybe they had the chance a few years ago when the engines first came in. That was their chance to yeah to do good and and kind of stomp on a little. And don't get me wrong, Massa and Bottas both picked up podiums that season. But you know now everyone else is starting to catch up engine wise. It's a uh, it's fallen back to being a bit of a midfield car, unfortunately, I think, hasn't it? Yeah, indeed. 
Yeah, uh, Red Bull, so Ricardo's nightmare for his home Grand Prix, but Verstappen did show that the car is capable of something, uh, coming fifth and wasn't too far from Raikkonen in the end, uh, not too far behind. And as he said himself, he was pretty happy with the pace that they had in it. So room for improvement, but it's still hanging on to the top two as they are at the minute. Yeah, well, they're a little bit behind, aren't they, the, the, the top two teams, but... Yeah, we we can we can only just hope that they join that pack and you now make make more entertaining races going forward. That and just for what the two drivers deserve, I think in terms of both their talent that they've got. Yeah, because yeah, I think that was that was possibly more Verstappen's talent than the car that got him to where it was today, as in him being fast. Yeah, so, the one. But thing we'll with see Verstappen. next. We'll see next time out as well, I suppose. That'll put us in a much better perspective as to where people do sit as things start to settle down a little more. Yeah. I just hope that as he gets more experienced, Verstappen still keeps that kind of rawness. And, yes. You know, he, he still has that bit of edge uh, about him because he has that little bit of unpredictability and um, that bit of gumption to go for it when other drivers probably wouldn't in some cases. It's, so. it's the same kind of attitude and I don't know, I don't know if talent's the right word, but it definitely an attitude thing. And it's the same sort of thing that that's going back to someone like Senna and even early Schumacher uh, in the mid-90s at Benetton. Uh, they had that same it's me or you kind of attitude going into a corner. Senna famously said, you know, if it's a choice between hitting you and overtaking you, I'll hit you if that's the outcome. At the end of the day, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting past you. You move out of my way and let me through. (laughs) Or, you know, we're both going to crash. And, you know, Schumacher was very similar, albeit maybe a little more controversially with the whole thing with Damon Hill. But it's that attitude of, I will do what it takes to win and I'll put my car somewhere that you might not expect because it's going to get me past you. And I think that's a little edge that Verstappen's got that, that helps make him as fast as he is. Yeah, and I'd even put Hamilton's first season or two up there yeah. as well because he, he was exactly the same. He had you know no nerves going into those battles and uh, especially in the wet as well when everyone was starting to lift off in the wet and Hamilton just went for it and to be to be fair he still does I suppose to a certain extent the battles with Rosberg where they were wheel to wheel kind of showed that and Hamilton was definitely more up for that kind of thing than Rosberg and I think Rosberg shied away from that and over defended at times which is what caused some of their coming togethers in those scenarios yeah. uh, Austria being a good example of Rosberg driving pretty much straight on at the corner because Hamilton was being aggressive and trying to come around the outside of him and didn't want yeah. it happening. Uh, so, but yeah, no more of that, unfortunately, or happily. I don't know. Is it Who good knows, or is like, it bad? Let's see how Bottas improves and let's see if there's any competition between That's Hamilton true. and Bottas. And as we speak about Hamilton and Bottas, the Mercedes roundup is just as simply as Bottas putting in a good performance on his debut with the team to bring the car home in third with little fuss. Um, uh, kept pace with Hamilton for the most part uh, Hamilton did seem a bit quick to complain about the tyres so I would be interested to see how that pans out and I think there was a point where maybe Hamilton was easing up which is maybe where Bottas closed some time towards the end of the race but he, he kept pace with him fairly well, he, you know, he didn't let Raikkonen through or anything You know, he, he held on to his third position in uh, respectably as I think 
is as much as you could probably hope for for a new driver and a new team first race of the season and hopefully he'll just you know pick up pace and and be challenging with the Vettels and the Hamiltons of this world and maybe make it a three-way fight. Yeah, he did well. I think he he almost um, ran his own race for the whole thing and just yeah. kept, his, kept his position. I don't think he needed to go for it too much because Vettel and Hamilton were battling it out anyway. So to come out home in third in your first race in that car, it's fine for him. Yeah, I, I'd happily agree and just say that to put in a solid, reliable performance shows that he knows when to pick his fights as well. Yeah. Uh, which you sometimes, you know, sometimes that gung-ho approach, If it, even Verstappen and Hamilton and Senna knew when to pick those fights that I'm talking about. And at least we know he's got that side nailed. <laughs> so yeah. we'll just see how he is when it comes to actually side-by-side racing someone for a lead of a race because it's different when you're doing it halfway down the field I think the pressure Uh, yeah I agree Uh, and then lastly Ferrari so a fantastic strategy call realistically uh, and a car that does seem to have great race pace Uh, Vettel making his win look hassle free and Raikkonen coming home in fourth but still bagging a fastest lap a car that looks like it will finally take the fight to Mercedes uh, after the promises of testing seem to come good in a race weekend, which we unfortunately were robbed of last season. And, and bring it on, I say. As I said earlier, I, I still think that there's things that they're going to turn up on those cars, both Mercedes and Fingers crossed. Ferrari. And, you know, it's going to be a season long battle, hopefully, between those four drivers with every. With hopefully Red Bull coming like close behind them, and then the rest of the pack, really, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I hope that it is not a track-specific pace that Ferrari have had this weekend. I, I do, and I, I hope that this will be a tit-for-tat battle between the two teams, and then hopefully someone like Red Bull can kind of catch up and maybe pick up on scraps as these two are, you know, fighting it out and sneak podiums and wins here and there and just keep it interesting really because that's what you want at the end of the day you don't as nice as it is to see one of your more favorite drivers winning a title to see him just walk away with it it's not even when it's your favorite driver it's not the most entertaining thing in the world is it it's just yeah hamilton said himself he would rather win a title having fought tooth and nail with someone to the end of the season than walk away with it. And and Vettel has also said the same thing. As much as his 2011 dominance was an awesome feeling, I think something like 2010 he possibly enjoyed more because of the way it went so close to the wire with Webber. And even if it yeah. is your teammate, you know, it's it's still competition. So let's like, hope we get a season like that. And it's similar to, I know we both played like the F1 games on consoles and whatever. And if... If you are running a season and and that and you're outperforming everyone and you're just literally out in front the whole time, how boring is that? Yeah. So you you can understand Hamilton's point of view that he wants to fight to win his championship and it's what the spectators want at the end of the day. So bring it on. Indeed, indeed. Um, so this time next week we should be bringing you anything interesting that's happened over the course of the week in the world of F1. We'll also have a return of definitely Chris 
hopefully Stu, uh, for a continuation of predictions going into China. Uh, and just do a little bit of build-up into what will be a double-header weekend with China and Bahrain quite close back-to-back. Um and see if been... Stu can get any points in the predictions. And see if Stu can get any points in the predictions league. <laughs> uh, it's been very kind of you to step in for the two of them, James. No, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for uh, asking me. Thanks for having me. It's all right. Um, you've sort of done back-to-back recordings, really, haven't you? You've been off on the squeak this afternoon and then straight into this. Yeah, did the squeak on Sheffield Live at two o'clock this afternoon. Um, that's just an hour and all done live, so that's uh, that's all in the bag. And then just rushed home to come and set up the mic and talk to you. Yeah, and your fun times. Listeners. Fun times. <laughs> so yes, if you would like to, um, if you enjoyed James's voice and you would like to hear more of James's voice talking about other things, then I'm you're sure crazy. James- James would say you're crazy, but I'm sure James can tell you the places where you can find him on the interwebs. You can find me uh, at DJ1, at D-W-E-J-A-Y-O-N-E on Twitter uh, and the Facebook and everything else. Uh, I've got a music podcast on there. Uh, there's The Squeak, which is spelt wrong as well. That's T-H-E-S-Q-W-E-E-K on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere. So, yeah, just uh, hit us up and uh, give us a listen and just say hello. There you go. Uh, and obviously, if you want to follow us and follow the show, it's Back of the Grid F1 on Twitter. We're Back of the Grid F1 on Facebook. And we're also Back of the Grid F1 on Instagram now, even though I've only posted about three pictures. But the nice pictures are Formula One cars. So go look at them. <laughs> and yeah, just remember the usual places the podcast can be found, such as Podbean, Acast, iTunes, and just by putting the feed url which is available on the website back of the grid.com straight into your podcast player of choice do you like to say goodbye james i, I will say goodbye and uh, again thanks for having me and uh, i look forward to listening to you guys again next week thanks and i look forward to doing another podcast and hopefully we will have you back soon yeah I look forward to it cool goodbye everybody <laughs> bye